Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're speaking to you this week from the world-famous Sue Ann Nivens School of Home Economics here on the beautiful Hoople campus. Today, we're talking about everybody's favorite biblical king, Solomon. Was he, as some uh, have now suggested, an Iron Age shipping magnate financing trade across the Mediterranean from his royal roost in Jerusalem, or was he just the modest ruler of a rather diminutive and generally unpretentious statelet, where record-keeping was as sparse as the historical imagination was large? What are states and kings in the Levant anyway? And, by the way, where are all the Israelite statues and monuments? So, so here's the lightning round. Um, favorite Iron Age king. Not just of, uh, of Israel or Judah, but the entire ancient Near East. Hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty thought-provoking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with, with something shameless. I'm going to go with um, uh, Shubiluliuma of uh, Tainat because I, you know, I, I watched his statue come out of the ground and personal uh, relationship. Exactly. It's right. Very, very Middle Eastern, per, all based on personal relationships. Right. And, and the statue is just, you know, extraordinary. It's just an incredible, incredible piece of uh, statuary. Right. Right. I've always liked the name Shukululiomash also. Great name. Yeah. What yeah. was it? Uh, what's it? Uh, Chaim Tadmor's cat, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Lots, lots of people in the field have named their cats and dogs after him, I think. But right. Yeah. Um, I will, I suppose, go with Ramses II, only because I've always liked the way his mummy or his statues actually look like his mummy. Um, Do we really count him as an Iron Age king? I was going to, but... <laughs> I'm staying out of this because they... I, I, I sense this is a long-standing personal debate between you two. <laughs> yeah. Not uh, so much, but I really, I was unprepared for the question, so. so. <laughs> the purpose of the lightning round. <laughs> we revealed the true selves through the lightning round. Right. All right. And Alex, well, I, you? I just looked up um, a list of, of Phoenician kings, and the one of the last ones is named Baal Asor II. <laughs> and I, I think for purposes of this broadcast, I'm gonna have to go with that. I know nothing about the guy. I'm sure he was I'm sure he was super, but 
it, you know, it touched me in a different way. I'm surprised you didn't go with Sargon II, being as you, you like that um, Assyrian pop star named Sargon. That's true. Yeah. And, and in fact, and, you know, this is another deep personal secret that I've, I've saved for these broadcasts. <laughs> My high school honors English teacher was named <laughs> Mrs. Miriam, Sargon. Miriam Sargon. Wow. 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 What a great name. Wow. And I, I really didn't understand how surreal this was until much, much later, because we would read all sorts of kind of bizarre literature. Um, Eugene Ionesco's rhinoceros, rhinoceroses, and uh, things like things like that, which were very disorienting. And I don't know, maybe there's a relationship with the name. Maybe not. But all my other high school English teachers were football coaches. Whoa. <laughs> maybe Mrs. Sargon was a direct descendant of the Assyrians. Um, she could have, uh, do, do modern Assyrians uh, use the name Sargon besides the singer? Besides the, the famed pop song star? Yeah. Well, that, that's something right, right into us, listener. <laughs> we'd, we'd like to know. But, um, but I guess maybe we should talk about the, the, the reason that we brought you all together today. <laughs> this, uh, this article in, in The Guardian, and, and let's be fair, it's more of a teaser because anything you read in the newspapers is just, it's not information. It's just, it's very meta about um, a scholar whose work we haven't yet seen because it's not yet published, who claims that, that um, King Solomon of, of biblical fame was the greatest entrepreneur of the, of the Iron Age, financing trips here and there, commerce overseas, and that, that signs and perhaps portents related to him are found as far west as, as Spain. And he was the ringmaster. He was the entrepreneur. Now, we don't really understand all of the argument, but <laughs> it's a good reason to talk about uh, uh, Solomon, who's, I guess, one of our, one of our favorite you know, biblical characters. I think we do understand all of the argument or we understand how the guardian was able to, to make these segues because <laughs> Solomon is, is uh, known from the Bible to have interacted with the Phoenicians and the Phoenicians are known to have traveled westward and there you have it. Westward ho. By the, by the laws of, tra uh, <laughs> the transitory laws of archeology. span <laughs> That's right. Is that, is that the commutative principle? Or what, what, would be, what would that be called? Well, the first thing I want to point out, I'm in a rather curmudgeonly mood, nothing new about that, <laughs> is that anytime we laud Solomon for anything, I think it needs to be really remembered, very important, that upon his death, his kingdom split apart like, yeah. like a walnut in a nutcracker. Yeah. So... Whatever he achieved was to say it was short-lived is an understatement. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it was it was pure ephemera. Right. Well, I, uh, pure not pure pure ephemera would be saying that he didn't exist at all. <laughs> well, no. Well, and, we had, and we know people who who say that. <laughs> you know, we've entertained them before in various fora, but. Uh, well, but is that is that 
reflective of historical realia or reality, <laughs> reality, or is that a kind of um, biblical trope that gives a tragic, a, a tragic uh, touch ending to an otherwise glittering career just to bring, knock him down a few notches? Right. Well, I mean, oh, we, we know it's not a biblical trope because we know that in the ninth century, we have a kingdom in the north and a kingdom in the south. Right. So of, of all the things we know and of all the things <laughs> that there's consensus, I think there's over, overwhelming consensus on that. Yeah, yeah. but there's no, there's no consensus about uh, uh, the existence of a historical person called Solomon because there's no extra biblical evidence thereof. And there's no real evidence for a kingdom of any um, size or stature or much less grandu grandiosity. <laughs> right, okay, so if we wanna get into- Much the, less in the, in the 10th century, and we're not even sure that there's a whole lot going on in the Southern part of the Southern Levant, um, Judah in the 10th century period. Okay, uh, th and let's, let's get into all that, but before we do that, um, let's at least point out that um, yeah, we don't have anything outside of the Bible, but the Bible is really very detailed. And what a lot of people tend to say is, is these details are not just made up. The court history of David and Solomon is so, and all the conspiracies that went on are, are so well recounted in the Bible itself. That's probably not made up out of whole cloth. So I just wanted to get that out there. Well, right. And we have the Dan stealing um, and feel right. free to, to make any kind of, you know, Steely Dan reference that you want, um, <laughs> insert here. So yeah, we know that there's a, you know, a house of David. Right. Um, and but so, so just as a parenthetical aside, we, 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 you don't believe that it was, that that was a forgery that was created <laughs> and planted on the, on the site. No. Um, yeah. And knowing, knowing the people who found it, I, I don't, they're lovely people. I don't really think that that's. No, no, no. I, yeah, I think yeah, all yeah. that, I, let, let's not get bogged down in, you know, in, <laughs> in, in the 1990s. <laughs> all this For many reasons. Glory days. Glory yeah. days. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we have a stele that mentions the dynasty of David and Solomon is David's son. And we have the names and other inscriptions of later descendants of David. So we can, we can, I'm, I'm happy to go out on a limb and it's not a very long limb and say that uh, these are likely to have been historical characters. Right, and we have enough, right now we have enough C, good C14 sequences of the 10th century at sites with biblical pedigrees to support all of that. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and I don't think we need to necessarily revisit the whole, you know, low chronology, high chronology. Um, no, let's well, not. I, I, I'll, I will revisit it only to the extent to say that I never saw, never saw the big deal about, you know, 25 years here or there. Yeah. Coming from the early Bronze Age, this is, this is a rounding <laughs> error. <laughs> right. Right, and okay, so there's, right, there's two things here. One is, is you know, when, when, you, when you put the, the protagonists of each side in a room together, you're talking about something on the order of, right, 30, 40 years max. Right. Second, I think that 
the most important thing about the whole high chronology, low chronology debate, such as it is currently, is that Finkelstein did the field a real service by forcing it to be much more rigorous and much more systematic about dating things okay. and not just accepting uh, the biblical narratives, but, and, and just emphasizing good archeology, span lots and lots of dates and a much more rigorous standard. And in that regard, he did, you know, Levantine right. archeology span a great service. And, there's a, and there was a procedure. It didn't just take the, the, the text as the, as the point of departure or, or try and figure out uh, why, why data, archeological data do or do not fit into some kind of putative historical textually derived framework, but there is a procedure, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, and it, it also- you know, you know what a stickler I am about procedure. As they say <laughs> in the modern, in modern sports worlds, trust the process. Exactly. Okay. It also highlighted whether you go high or middle or low, um, it highlighted the, the real question that I suspect we're gonna talk about, which is how big was Solomon's kingdom, right? Was it a really, really big kingdom or was it a slightly smaller than the Bible says it was kingdom? And, and whatever year you choose to, to play around with, um, I think that's, that's really more of the, the question. And in terms of the, the, the specifics of the chronology, you know, when I teach my undergraduates, it's, it's really much more important to me that they understand that this is like approximately um, 1000 BC as opposed to the height of classical Greece, which is approximately the fourth century. You know, the, the, we're, when we're talking about larger understandings of the ancient world, a couple of decades doesn't really matter. Some people are lumpers and some people are splitters. Exactly. I'm a lumper, what are you guys? I'm a lumpy splitter. <laughs> yeah, it depends on it depends on the thing. Well, you know, when you get down to stuff that you really care about, I tend to be like a splitter. Yeah. But when you teach, you have to be a lumper. Right. I right. just got I found it a little tedious after the first what 900 articles, I guess. Right. Well, there's that there's that aspect also. Uh, constantly revisiting the same thing over and over again. Yeah. But um, but that's sort of part of the way the social humanities work. <laughs> you have to take an important issue and literally beat it into into a little piece of <laughs> tiny foil. But, uh, okay, but back to your question. Be that as it may. Be that as it may. Yeah. Back, back to your question, Rachel. It's a good question. I, I would I would want to start with this. Yes, there was a Davidic dynasty. Whoever followed David, whether it was Solomon or, or, and let's just say it was Solomon. We do have archeological data that, that, that dates to the 10th century. We have more and more of it as we, as there's more and more re-excavation of large tell sites and there's more and more rigorous C14 sequences that are derived from these sites. And still, <laughs> we, the only evidence we have is for a very, very modest state. A state, but just modest. There's nothing grandiose about it. And, and I, can, I can sort of draw some parallels to this when you would compare any site in Israel in the Iron Age 
to writ large to, to the site of Tel Tainat, where I work in Turkey in the Iron Age too, when, where you have huge monumental sculpture, buildings, structures uh, that make it quite clear that this is a very, very, you know, wealthy, robust. It's a happening place. Kingdom. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's a happening place. It's and a happening place they, and, they, and they take efforts to show that it's happening. Right. Yeah. And exactly. As good elites should. Right. It's all about, you know, it's all about demonstrating your eliteness. Yeah. So after over a hundred years of excavating and re-excavating all of the major Bronze and Iron Age tell sites in Israel, we have nothing right. in terms of monumental, grandiose, superlative material. Well, I wouldn't say nothing. I would say we have smaller scale grandiose stuff. Well, no, I would say smaller scale. I wouldn't say grandiose. <laughs> Okay. Grand, grand, grandiosity is in the eye of the beholder and, and in the check. I would say good, good quality elite stuff on a smaller scale. Hmm. <laughs> what is that? An that's like an advertisement for. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot, lot of qualifiers. It's right. Yeah. It's it's the discount store. Yeah. If you're still well, feeling elite after four hours, please see a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. It's not an unreasonable <laughs> assessment of the general <laughs> level of level and trend. It's uh, it's no, it's it's like I'm I'm not gonna come up with a good comparison here, but it's like I don't know, comparing New York City to to um now I'm afraid to say a city to Knoxville. To Knoxville. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. You just can't expect things on the same scale. Right. And and that's fine. I mean, this was, you know, this was this is an old. This is an old and important point. You know, every society uh, has its own has its own charms, right. uh, and it's right. not about size and right. all but of these kinds of things. And that's revolution is 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 uh, it's an exhibition, not a competition. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all fine. I'm just saying that it's not. It's a state. Right. But it's a state that's not making a particularly large scale <laughs> statement. Statement. Yeah. Right. Mm. States without statements. Ooh. Yes. Ooh. Yeah. That's the that's it's the making a smaller It's making a smaller scale statement. It's still well, making a well, statement. It's making a statement. The only statement they're capable of making is smaller scale. <laughs> I mean, they're not making a small scale statement. They just make a statement that we then assess is small scale. Right. 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 That's well phrased. But they were familiar, as we know, with with the neighbors, some yeah. of whom the east were, were even kind of smaller scale. Right, exactly. And, and some of whom to the north were rather bigger scales and down to the southwest were really tri quite impressive scalar wise. Um, even in the 20, 20th dynasty and, and thereafter. Right. So they just did their thing. They were cool with it. We should be cool with it too. Is that, is that the message? I think yeah. that is the message. And I think the other message is the great state builders, if you will, metaphorically speaking, are the biblical authors. They're the ones who built the grandiose state. And that's fine. That's their, own, that's their literary prerogative. 
Right. Um, you mean the grand build, building it by in, reinserting it or by inserting it backwards in time, the grand, the grandiosity? Yeah, and, right. Exactly. And by constructing the grandiosity, right. by imagining it and by, you know, giving it all sorts of, you know, a sense of infinity. So that's, that's really, and grandioseness. that's the question really though. That's, you know, certainly we know that by the time that they're writing all this down in the sixth century or editing it all together in the sixth century, they have this idea or they want to put forward this idea that, yeah, it was really a big deal in the 10th century, but that does, that kind of begs the question of, of, you know, how did they think of themselves in the 10th century? Were, that's, were that's they- authorial intent. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that is that matter in in postmodern literary sensibilities or or not? <laughs> do we have we recentered ourselves as the as the author? Do are the, do the readers become the author? Ooh, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> everyone drink. Um. <laughs> Did they appreciate reception? And was the reception any good in the, in the Iron Age? Right, <laughs> right. Or did they have to just keep adjusting those two antenna on top of the set? And the kid would, oh, it's perfect. The picture's it's coming in right there. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring you two down closer to the ground here. So um, away from theory. And um, how, how do we measure the size and scale of this kingdom of Solomon in the 10th century, archeologically? Let's explain by, by what we're What? by bureaucracy, okay. by the bureaucratic system and the bureaucratic content and the bureaucratic output. So, you know, tears are always, <laughs> tears are always important, right? And, uh, you know, administrative tears and, uh, you know, levels of government and site size hierarchies and all of that kind of thing. And based on the output, the bureaucratic output of Israel as a united monarchy, or certainly Judah, these are, there's very little. And it's all very- We keep coming back to the fact that they, they didn't <laughs> write a lot down. Right, exactly. Yeah. Until they, they, they decided, down. you know, we're just gonna write a lot of stuff down. Yeah, exactly. So because they had their sort of, you know, they did their retrojection and they had their retrospective kind of revenge on all of their neighbors um, because it's their stories that we're reading. But in terms of accounts receivable and accounts payable and the movement of goods, they were really at a kind of, you know, early Bronze Age level. <laughs> they were stamping the handles of jars. Right. All right, so we got, yes, yeah, so, so that's, that's nice, right? So we do have these stamped jars. We know there's a, bureaucrat a bureaucratic system in place. Okay, but that's late. Right. The jars late. are late, yeah. too. So, what? The, jar, the, the, the jars are, are right. not from the era right. of Solomon, the great financier. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, right. mogul who's, who's, you know, saying, buy low, sell high, get right. me some Venetian silver. So yeah. by later in the Iron Age, we know we have this bureaucratic system in Judah. Fine. And that's already when you have a kingdom in the north and a kingdom in the south. So we have to go back a little bit farther. And what people usually talk about um, for the 10th century is architectural remains and, and, uh, and extent of, of um, ceramic typologies. That is how far they extend uh, any given type might extend geographically to show whether or not one, one city is 
ruling all. Right. Just like just like what we do in the early Bronze Age <laughs> to try and well, exactly. You don't need writing, as every good little archaeologist knows. You don't need writing to figure things out. You kind of you. No. Kinda, you kind of do. <laughs> it really uh -huh. kind of helps. I don't know. I know of some archaeologists who've written entire books talking about reconstructing ancient Israel just based on archaeology. Um, who, who, who might have been somebody who taught both of you. <laughs> I might have been. We, get him on, we have him on speed dial. <laughs> and let's bring that man onto the, on the phone right now. Um, no, that's okay. Um, one can reconstruct a a, um... a lot, but there's just not a lot of bureaucracy. Right. There isn't. I think. Yes, they're writing on sherds much more than we thought, but it's not. And yeah, they're writing on. They're building uh, big public buildings in a variety that's of cities. That's the point. They're not big public buildings. This is the whole point. Are they little public buildings? I'm sorry. Are they little public buildings? They're, they're not so prominent. These public buildings are not humongous by any stretch. So if you look at Iron Age kingdoms throughout the ancient Near East, anything from the 10th century on, if you look in, you know, anywhere in, in Anatolia, in the Northern Levant, there are big, huge public buildings. Right. And of a size, and a intensity, right? They have huge foundation footings, right? They go down 14 meters, you know, crazy stuff like that. Right. But we just don't have that. You look at Urartian sites and Urartian sites, um, maybe the public buildings actually are in, in some scale or sense are the same in the Southern Levant, but they are, the level of workmanship is much higher and they're replete with inscribed texts and cornerstones and things like that, right? They know how to write. Judeans and Israelites all know how to write. But in the, with the Urartians, they put little inscriptions on their buildings. And that's not, that doesn't happen in the Southern Levant. Right. And, and the level of workmanship is, is much better. So, you know, there is a, a level of... Right, and then in the in the Urartian world, they're all over the damn place. They are all, and over they're the place. in crazy locations. Right, and, uh, and way on the top of a mountain somewhere. And well, all these right, things. always and on the top. They're, of they're making declarations in space <laughs> about <laughs> declarations in space. I'm gonna write that one down too. <laughs> I I think you've sort of been ruined by your time excavating in Turkey for no, the Southern no, no. Levant. I, it's not ruined. This, there's no ruination going on here. What it is is, and that's a very that's a very East Tennessee thing. What it is is, what it is is, the Southern Levant is just very modest. Right. And had there not been a Hebrew Bible, it would be appreciated in a much different way. Right. And there right. wouldn't be articles that appear on the front page of the Guardian, and there wouldn't be societies, and there wouldn't be, you know, tours of the Mediterranean in which biblical archeologists, you know, pontificate and opine, because it would just be a very modest, small scale society, which is fine, that's perfect. This is the great irony though, that that's 
Exactly. Yeah. Of, of all these many civilizations, some of which were really great and monumental, et cetera, the one that lasted because of one late piece of writing, which they didn't really do much of, but because of this one late piece of writing, this is the one that people remember and are interested in. And exactly. that was the Guardian Publishing. Transcendental up yours to, <laughs> to the what? ancient Near East. It's what? like, yeah. we're, we're still here. Right. <laughs> and you guys who are much bigger and more sophisticated and who used to beat us up, well, screw you. Right. <laughs> exactly. Maybe that was the authorial intent. <laughs> well, maybe it was. <laughs> I mean, you know, so for instance, other than the Dan stealing, we don't have any kind of a real, well, and not even other than the Dan stealing, we don't really have, you know, royal or monumental inscriptions from the 10th century. They didn't, even though they might've been aware of that tradition, they had no interest in replicating that degree of, of you know, elite or royal prerogatives, which right. is a very, very common royal prerogative throughout the Near East. To take a piece of stone, write all over it and slap it into the corner of a building so yeah. that everybody knows that, you know, this is this is all part right, and and in this and in this period, uh, unlike the earlier periods, we really have to to do comparative study at a at a much more intense level because it's all interrelated at a much more in in much more intimate ways, and people are groups are influencing each other, and scripts are coming into into use, and they're all kind of based on the same scripts, and and it's all becoming one integrated thing at a much, much higher level than ever before. And the fact that they did do certain things like, I don't know, flatten their building stones in a particular way is, is indicative of one thing, but that they didn't make monumental inscriptions or lots of figurative art of any in stone is is indicative of another thing. They just yeah. they just didn't care. They didn't about that care. Stuff. They didn't and care. But sort of say it wasn't part of their tradition. I mean, these late Bronze Age palaces, which we have, and some of which are quite splendid. I mean, certainly, oh, or, or late Bronze Age palaces at a place like Hatsor, But you know, we have a nice palace at Beit Shemesh. But right. and, and well, this it's is wonder, it's a wonderful you know archaeological uh, example but it's quite modest. So here's, here's something else I think we should just state outright. So in the late Bronze Age, uh, we have these different Canaanite, big, medium-sized city-states, right? But they're independent polities. And what we're talking about, what we're arguing about for the Iron Age is, is there suddenly one polity that, that controls a larger territory? And we're arguing about it largely because we see it from the biblical text. We, he we hear about this guy, David, we hear about his son, Solomon, and we hear that they that David conquered all this land and Solomon continued to rule all this land and had great relations with his neighbors and all that. So it's a very different model that we're being told about historically for the Iron Age than for the late Bronze Age. So well, but this also brings me to one of my pet peeves. <laughs> yes. Of which, as you know, there are many, that were it not for for the biblical texts, would we think that there are kingdoms at all in the Levant at all? Right, well, this is something that we've talked about, whether the Iron Age examples that we have in the Southern Levant are kingdoms or just a continuation 
of the city-state model. Right. With some emendations. Right. There are clearly some things shift around a little bit. Um, so what do you think? I think for Judah, Judah is, a, I think, I think Judah makes a pretty good case of being, a, you know, the city-state of Jerusalem with a large, for the Southern Levant, a very large hinterland. Okay. And then some administrative centers like Lachish. Okay. I would not disagree. Um, <laughs> the lack of disagreement should not be taken as agreement, though. <laughs> <laughs> Just a caution on that. So we don't want to be too categorical. I, I'm using a lot of qualifiers for this entire conversation. Well, you're eminently qualified to use oh. the qualifiers. Yeah. <laughs> These are the qualifications that uh, that indicate quality. Right. Yeah. No. I, I I agree. I think the paradigm the paradigm of of kings and kingdoms is uh, and and states in general uh, have to be have to be kind of turned turned sideways ninety degrees. I mean, Phoenician city states. What are they? They're really just um, they're just late Bronze Age city states that kind of got back on their feet. Um, you know, each of them is, is individual. They don't really, they don't really hang out that much with, with one another. They just write in this kooky alphabetic script now, instead of the even kookier alphabetic, you know, cuneiform scripts that they used to write in. Um, so uh, territorial states, uh, big sites that dominate smaller sites or hinterland that maybe have one or two administrative levels, you, you have that in the late Bronze Age. You certainly have that in the Middle Bronze Age and maybe even in the early Bronze Age. So nothing ever changes <laughs> is that's, that's, my, that's my message. And our, our mentality has been skewed um, archeologically by the biblical texts. We go looking for things. Right. Well, you're thinking what's there. You find what you look for. Right. If you want a state in the 12th century, someplace in, in Jordan, well, you can find it. You can create it. Um, you can talk about it. Yeah. Um, but if you stand back and try to look at it systematically or look at it in any kind of a comparative framework, then I think you, you start finding yourself in that position where, yeah, very little has changed. Um, and then the other, of course, there is the qualifier in the Iron Age too, well, in beginning in the ninth century, is that whatever is happening at the local level, you do have this imperial right because there power. there really is an eight hundred pound gorilla right. Um, well, there's an eight hundred pound gorilla and maybe a seven hundred pound gorilla in in Egypt, and and you have five hundred pound, four hundred pound gorillas <laughs> in, in in the Neo Hittite range and it's becoming a it's becoming a jungle out there really <laughs> <laughs> or, or at least a primate house <laughs> exactly. and right. they're you know they're throwing stuff at each other and they're about to it, go to war exactly right. and, and the little the little primates are going to get stomped on the way they always do as right. always exactly right so what's really new well there's our podcast <laughs> <laughs> That's new. That's new. 
And the medium is the message. Well, I think, no, I think you're, you're bringing up some really interesting um, different approaches. So, so one of the things that used to be always said is, oh, you've got this Salmonic architecture, right? You've got the same style of fortifications in three cities in different locations. And this means there's some grand plan that is being put forward by the central authority. But the more, the more I listen to this conversation, uh, the less I, the less I subscribe to that actually, um, because you know it could be just a, a sort of material culture of the Southern Levant thing, well, which doesn't necessarily I, stem I from. Think from a strictly archaeological point of view, mm-hmm. I mean, on the one hand, the the insight that yeah, these plans at Megiddo, Chatzor, and um, and Gezer, Gezer, right. <laughs> 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 are are very similar and that you know in terms of units of measurement and sizes and things that, and so yeah there's there's something there's something going on there are templates but do templates translate into architects and traveling bands of, right. of mary masons which has no. been said yeah right and and one of the other things is that our our old pal our very senior colleague, distinguished archaeologist, um, David Usishkin, pointed out um, really some time ago that all of these all of these plans have to be themselves deconstructed into different phases. They're not all built overnight. Right. And that any kind of logic suggests, archaeological logic, suggests that, yeah, they're built over a period of, of years. And that's not necessarily, and, and that, you know, big royal buildings were stand royal in quotes, were standing on the summit of a famous site like Megiddo, but the, the site had no walls. So it right. sent one kind of message. And maybe a few years later, they, they got the resources to build the, the, the wall around it. And this changes our perception of the nature of the authority that is doing all of this or authorities that are doing all of this building and representing and throwing down and to to one another. Locally, it means one thing. Internationally, it means one thing, another thing. And and yeah, the, I think the sum result the, the sum result is that it's a lot less kind of royal and grand than than ever before. But. Yeah. Uh, I mean, during the course of this conversation, I'm be- I- I've always sort of skewed somewhat to the more maximalist side. And I'm, during the course of this conversation, I'm kind of coming around to something much more neutral that uh, you've got a cultural continuum. You might even have architects, you know, traveling around a little bit, but uh, that doesn't mean that they're all working for the same central authority. It just means that they're doing things in a certain way in lots of different places that are in the same small region. Right. I want a I want a building with I want a gate with those with those chambers. I like what they've got over there. I, I want to yeah. do it too. Right. You know, I heard about it. I saw it one time when I was visiting. Right. And that's what I that's what I want. Right. And and another little princeling would say, you know, a palace. I want a big building, and I want my chapel connected to it because all the all the great <laughs> the great kings yeah. of the ancient Near East are doing that. Right. That's what I want. Um, and, and in that respect, it's almost a better example of this, one that's much more legible, 
would be all the Mayan centers in, right. in the classic Mayan period, in which you have, you know, a very, very systematic and um, thoroughly organized and com comprehensible template for what constitutes uh, the center of a Mayan center. Wall courts and palaces and temples, wall courts, palaces, temples. And every time you have some kind of fissioning off of, a, of, a, of an elite group, that's what they do. And they, you know, they might have two ball courts. The numbers might be different. The orientations might be different. But the suite of material you know, uh, representations of eliteness get replicated over and over again. And, right. and, and it's that kind of a thing. Yeah. On again, on a smaller scale, on a more modest scale. Yeah. Um, on a scale that is <laughs> almost illegible, which is why we have so much trouble with it. If it was more massive and more tangible and more, it would be more comprehensible. Right. But because of the modesty, it's, we, you get a lot of variability in the interpretation because the interpretation is just, you know, you can say anything about all of this stuff. Whereas in the Mayan example, the interpretations are all pretty within a narrow sort of framework because the material framework is so legible. Right. Courts, palaces, temples, ball courts, palaces, temples, and some kind of you know large open plaza for a marketplace. And and everybody agrees. There's great consensus. Right. And a consensus on what it means to be a Mayan elite. This is what you do. And they do it. Whereas our guys, <laughs> they're still trying to figure out. And ultimately, ultimately, it's the it's the the literary achievement which gives them greatness. Right. Not the material achievement. And the literary achievement is, you know, this small religious scribal group that live in a bubble. <laughs> And it really, you know, it's always good to live in a bubble. You can think whatever you want to think and say whatever you want to say, and you can believe it all because you're in this hermetically sealed bubble. And that's quite clear that the, you know, that the biblical authors are deep in this bubble. Well, they're, they're in a bubble. That's true. They, but they, and they work for, <laughs> they, they work for the, the king yeah. in a sense, uh, but there's a temple so they're sort of between these different forces and they're forced into this, these moralistic judgments about kings who don't follow the path. And then you have this whole prophetic tradition that is outside of the bubble, but it becomes part of a, a core of the tradition. Right. But they don't have to worry. They don't have to worry about the things that, that royalty or the king, the king's household has to worry about. They don't, they're not going to ever serve on the front lines and get killed. Right. They never right. have to wage war. They never have to collect taxes. They never have to, you know, get deal with a populace that's that's angry about the, the collection of taxes. Well, I they, think sometimes they do. Well, sometimes, sometimes they do, but only in terms of a rhetorical argument. But but they truly live in a bubble, whereas the secular leadership doesn't live in quite the same degree of, of a bubble. I think you're, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure I agree We're with that. We're arguing about the, the, the nature of the bubble. That's right. Right, right. right. 
right because because you can say how big is the bubble is the bubble the the king <laughs> and his staff or, right? and the priests or is it is it just the priests who are writing the text later on i think it but whoever it is it's it's a jerusalem centric bubble right and and that i think is clear and it's and it's the priesthood of this particular god who became the god but wasn't always the god because there are lots of other gods around but it's it's this it's this priesthood servicing this one god um, which makes up the bubble. I tend to think of the kings as being more, the kings and the priests as being part of the same bubble. But, but Well, maybe. okay, but this goes back to something we talked about um, many, many months ago, it seems. Um, <laughs> you, have, you, have another, you have another priesthood um, down, uh, down at uh, Arad. Right. And, and we know that they're sitting there getting really, really high. Right. right? And they're going, what are they saying? Like, man, those, those guys in Jerusalem, they, right. they do not, they just suck. They, right. they don't get what, what's going out here in, on here in the, in the parishes. If or only they, they had written their own text. Right. Or are they saying, oh, you know, write that down, write that down. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, that's great. That's great. And, but none of that has survived. Right. Right. The, How many the, times can you keep writing down? But it's a dry heat. <laughs> Right. Well, they're probably really, as we know, they were they were probably so high that they had all these great ideas. They looked at it the next day and like, oh man, right? <laughs> yeah, that's just that's just stupid. Erase that. Erase that shirt, please. Right. Right. <laughs> so so that again, thing? that's a perfect example. So there were other bubbles out there. They just didn't. Um, they just didn't survive in terms of of posterity. Um, right. But and but in all the Aramean kingdoms, say yeah. What were they? What were they writing down? Or were they putting all of their kind of cultural, imaginative energy into um, writing monumental inscriptions on big pieces of rock? Right. Or or carving statuary. Clearly right. they were. Clearly it was a, a much more varied and uh, specialized landscape. Yeah, they had a bigger right. economy. But why didn't they write down their national story? Or or was the was their national story really just this big? rock in the shape of a king right and, and they, that's as far as they got there's also the argument of you know you don't need to write down um universal truths that everybody knows in history that everybody knows you know you know it so why would you write it down <laughs> wow <laughs> whoa <laughs> seriously wait a minute I that's not an original idea um, it's just, you I know, write that down. The, th the things that are the least explained in texts like the Hebrew Bible, the terms that are least explained are not explained because everybody knew them. So why would you bother explaining them? Um, yeah. But, okay. But in, in Egyptian civilization, they're writing down all sorts of crazy stuff. Okay. That's a good point. About all their theology and their wacky yeah. concepts i mean we respect them deeply for for what they <laughs> for what they thought and what they did but you know the ba and the ka and the aten and uh, the hands coming out of the uh, coming out of the the aten and you know all yeah, this yeah. kind of stuff and well i i regret bringing up the whole topic here <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's other stuff that I don't know if we should even bring it up or not, but, you know, material culture, um, particular types of ceramics that kind of, 
show up in the early Iron Age and the Iron Age one that kind of established a, a whole um, typology by the Iron Age two. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so so there is there is some sort of unified culture, but that doesn't necessarily mean. I, I'm trying to get at some you know big truths here. Um, <laughs> Some, I, don't, I don't know if material remains can lead you to big truths. Okay. I, okay. I, I'm just not sure that, you know, I mean, one thing about pottery is there's the production of pottery and there's the marketing of pottery. And that gives pottery a, you know, a very kind of quotidian dimension to it because it has to appeal to, it has to function in a marketplace. Mm -hmm. And it has to be produced in, with some eye towards the economics. So, so if you're making wacky individualized Etsy style pottery. You better be on Cyprus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, Cyprus, um, is, Cyprus is Etsy and uh, <laughs> And Judah in Israel are, you know, Manchester. Right. <laughs> Making it for the masses. Right. Right. Uh, except they're not even exporting it to the world. Right. And they're not even masses. There's just, it's a small population. It's tableware. Right. It's, it's Walmart. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not even Fiestaware. There's, there's not even Fiesta. <laughs> <laughs> well, there probably wasn't a lot of Fiesta <laughs> kind of mentality in these, uh, in, in these societies. Yeah, I always wondered why why the, the pottery was somehow so important to the story of the state in the Southern Levant. Because of people like us. <laughs> Probably. I mean, you know, it's because it's all we had. Yeah, right. mea culpa. It's all, it's all they had. It's because we didn't have the big statues and the right. gigantic public buildings. Yeah. So we return in the end to the, to the, which uh, something that could be our mantra. It's interesting because it's not interesting. And how many years ago did we come up with that? Literally, we came up with that 35 years ago. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. But it's well, a message that we have to keep getting across. It is. Although coming back to your, your Mayan um, example, um, just the fact that things are more clear cut and things are less clear cut for us, if it were so, you know, it's much more interesting and fun to debate because we don't know. And because we can argue two sides of the same coin. It's only because you've never played ball on a Mayan ball court. I have not. No, I mean, the Mayan example only were, it was only very specific for the arc the architecture because Mayan, the symbolism and, and iconography of the Mayan world is, is beyond crazy, right? I mean, there's no end of, of trying to figure that out and what they're going to communicate and what, they're, and what they are communicating to each other. I mean, Mayan regalia, Aztec regalia, it's just mm -hmm. a level of, of incredible um, meaning and symbolism and significance. So they're operating at that level also. Right, right. I was just talking about the architecture of the state or okay. the architecture of the elite, which right. is. But that's why you know I don't want to raise one of your one of your other pet peeves, and that's the the Bichilani. Um, oh God! Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh my God! The idea that there is this kind of temp Near Eastern template in the late Iron Age that comes out of Assyria 
of a palace with a courtyard kind of a arrangement that spreads around. Yeah. But, you know, there's, it is a, you do have to, after a thousand or 1100, whenever you do have to look at the entire Near East as a kind of continuum. Right. Where, where things are, are ideas, images, plans, um, all based on very, very similar sort of um, cosmologies are ebbing and flowing. And uh, so, so it's not surprising that, you know, <laughs> there's a Bikilani or not. Right. Yeah, well, I'll be surprised if if the All right, I'm going to be the optimist and say that one one day soon, somebody's going to dig up a foundation deposit that has an inscription on it that says, "I, King Solomon, commissioned the build the building of this structure, and the year is 950 BC." And we'll spend the rest of our lives deciding if it's a it's it's a forgery or not. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you know, honestly, that would be the worst thing that ever happened. Because <laughs> you know that even if it was authentic, there would be a huge part of the scholarly community right. that would reject it a priori. That's true. That we, we, we right. ultimately would never be able to know if it was authentic or not, because the well has been so radically poisoned. Well, that's true. Although you would know it's authentic if you dig it up in a clear-cut archaeological context. You think that would do it? I think, I think that would do it. I think if there was something that demonstrative, it would always be suspect. Um, that's true, and the debate would rage on. But but you and I would know that it's real. <laughs> we would know in our in the, our heart of hearts. In our heart you of hearts, you know eyewitnesses to the digging up of this hypothetical inscription, we would know it's real. You know what? Some some jamoke would come along three months later and say, you know, on the basis of the script, it can't be. And some other guy would come along and say, um, on the basis of the the published stratigraphy, and they didn't publish the pictures. And from you know, in, the, in this six hour period, yep. there's no documented drawings or pictures, and it's obviously fake. So, right. Well. It's sounds like the topic for a podcast. Mm, if, only, if only people were doing podcasts about this kind of <laughs> nonsense, would be a good way to communicate to the masses. Yeah, yeah. So, if we learned anything from all this, final thoughts. You're only pretty as you feel. <laughs> That's sort of a boxers versus brief kind of <laughs> kind of. Uh, metaphysic there that you're proposing <laughs> but uh well well i think i think what i've learned is that everything is exactly the way the bible says it is except we can't ever prove any of it woo, woo. that's a throw down going <laughs> down into the deep water on that yeah really yeah okay yeah well i would say that less is more and uh you know it ain't the meat it's the motion <laughs> oh. I could go on into Spain <laughs> rather extensively, but maybe this is a good place to 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 stop. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> you might want to snip off that last part. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there you have it. 
proof that you really can have too much of a good thing. As always, we thank Erez Dessel and his quartet for our theme music, and we thank our sponsor, the Oceanic Steam Navigation Company, better known as the White Star Line. Book your passage now on our flagship, the SS Poseidon. To get in touch, leave us a comment, send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.